<laughs> um, this morning I'm going to be reading from Romans chapter 15, starting at verse 1 all the way through to verse 13. So if you'd like to split your Bibles open, Romans chapter 15. Chapter 15, starting at verse 1. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbours for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs may be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again, it says, rejoice, your ge you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the people extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up. One who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Madeline, very much for reading for us. And once again, we'll have this uh, mythical prize for those who can see the connections between Romans 15 and the passage to which we now turn. Uh, and uh, I invite you to turn, please, to uh, back to 2 Kings chapter 6. No, we're not doing the axe head again, but uh, uh, we're starting a little bit later in 2 Kings chapter 6 and verse 24. And friends, as we turn to the scriptures in this way now, uh, can I invite you to pray with me, please? We've just heard that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Our God and Heavenly Father, as we turn our attention to your word, we pray that you might so speak to each one of us that we might learn the secret of hope in this troubled world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, friends, uh, in this study, I want to I want to begin with what I think is a is a tough question, and it's yeah, it's it's not it's not tough because it's complicated. It's just tough because it's tough. And this is the question: What is the right response to terrible suffering? When I say the right response, I don't mean something virtuous. You know, perhaps being brave is admirable thing to do if you're the one who's suffering. Or giving to a relevant charity might be a good thing to do when you learn of terrible suffering somewhere in the world. But that's not quite what I'm getting at just now. I'm trying to think about the reaction of our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, when we encounter or when we experience terrible suffering. We all do, or we will do, or we have done, in one way or another in the course of our lives. And I ask this question because we're all aware, aren't we, that many people today see suffering either in their personal lives or in the unspeakable horrors of which we hear almost daily, many see a reason to turn away from God. I cannot accept a God who would allow that to happen, they say. That's really the thinking very largely of um, the gentleman we talked about yesterday, uh, Mr Richard Dawkins, Dr. Rich, Professor Richard Dawkins. Let's get this right. Uh, he perceives the suffering in the world and says something very close to this. I cannot accept a God who would allow that to happen. And I want to suggest that most of us feel at least some sympathy for this way of thinking. We sort of get it, don't we? How could you not get it? You kinda, we kind of understand why a sufferer who has suffered terribly or a person who's been confronted with terrible suffering might want to have nothing to do with the God who did not prevent the suffering. You to get that. And we struggle to find something appropriate to say. I mean, it makes no sense to suggest that God is not involved in any particular tragedy that has led someone to repudiate God. God is God. There's nothing that happens that's outside of his sovereign rule. That's part of what God means. And that includes the worst atrocities. We cannot pretend that Terrible suffering is less dreadful than it actually is. And perhaps the thought crosses our minds, how could the experience of dreadful suffering not drive a person away from God? That's a real question, isn't it? And yet, the Bible's message and the experience of millions of believers down the centuries is that the right, the, the sensible, 
the best possible response to suffering, even the most dreadful suffering, the real way to find hope in the face of horror, the way to not despair, is to turn to God. That's a strange message, isn't it? How can it be right? But it's the Christian message. There'll be all sorts of things for you, those of us who are Bible readers, these, these phrases will be familiar to us. We Christians, what do we say? We have been born again to a living hope. In uh, the passage that Madeline read to us a moment ago, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul prayed, may you, may you abound in hope. You might remember Peter's famous words, Always be prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That's actually our experience of God. And if you go through the New Testament and just have a look, get your, whatever you do these days, we don't get uh, concordances out, we do it on our phones or something, something like that. You look, look through all the references to hope in the New Testament, or as many as you have, have the energy to do, and you find almost all of them are set typically in circumstances of suffering. It's not just that I'm experiencing hope because life is wonderful. No, I'm experiencing hope in the midst and in the face of and confronted with suffering. How is that possible? Really? What, is it, what does it mean to turn to God when you are overwhelmed by suffering? Either personally, actually facing it yourself, or just taking it seriously when you hear about it, when you see it. How can we do that? How does it make any difference? The question I'm asking, I suppose, is how does hope work? And indeed, how can hope start? Now, those are the questions I hope that we can have in our minds as we begin our study this time. We've been looking uh, at this rather uh, unfamiliar Old Testament book known as Two Kings, uh, and we've been seeing, at least this is uh, what I very much hope we have been seeing, how these pages of ancient history are rather powerfully relevant, surprisingly powerfully relevant, because, and the reason for this is, that there are striking parallels between the disintegration of the Old Testament nation of Israel, that's what Two Kings is about, and the state of our world today, with all of its suffering. Now, I'm not going to go over, or back over that now, but... but but this morning and this afternoon at, uh, at five o'clock, I want to turn with you to a particularly striking story that we're going to look at in two parts. It begins at 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 24, and goes through to the end of chapter 7. And it is a story, I'm warning you, it's a story about terrible, devastating suffering, horrendous suffering, and how in the midst of that, hope became possible. And I want us to understand how that, how that happened. And uh, here now we're going to look at part one, which I've given the title, you'll notice on your notes there, How Hope Starts. And then this afternoon we'll look at part two, 
how hope works. So I do hope you can be back this afternoon to see how the story ends. If you don't come back this afternoon, you're not allowed to read on and find out how it ends. I've found that the best way to get people to read their Bibles is to tell them not to. And uh, if you bring someone along at five o'clock this afternoon, as we've been encouraged to do, uh, I'll be making sure as best I can that part two of the story makes sense, uh, even if you've missed part one. But this morning, uh, we have three scenes. We're only just beginning to get into the story this morning. Three scenes, uh, I've called scene one, terrible suffering. The situation we're looking at is described in uh, 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 24, like this. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, one of our confusions here is uh, the NIVs that most of you have call Syria Aram. Uh, my Bible has Syria, and just, so just bear with me, I'm going to call it Syria all the time, but you'll see Aram in your Bible probably, so don't be confused. Afterward, uh, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria or Aram, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. Now, uh, can I ask you to use those imaginations of yours and picture the scene. Samaria, Israel's capital city, now surrounded by a mighty, powerful, hostile enemy army. If you're in that city, there is no communication in or out of the city. There are no movement of food supplies. Water is scarce. That's how a siege worked. Uh, in the ancient world, uh, I, I, I take it as, as in the modern world, but I'm only interested in the ancient world for the moment, it was a brutal form of warfare, sieging a city. The potential suffering was horrendous. The people in a besieged city were facing a slow death just by starvation. And verse 25 tells us that there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it, until... A donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab, uh, the NIV says, of seed pods, my, NIV, my ESV, which is a little bit more literal, calls it dove's dung, all right, uh, was sold for five shekels of silver. Um, the siege came, in other words, at the worst possible time. There was already a famine. Uh, the city had no food supplies set aside for a situation such as they now face. The people were already hungry as the enemy forces sealed off the city. And things were seriously bad. We don't know much about shekels and all that kind of thing. Uh, we don't know much about donkey's heads and dove do dove's dung either, I suppose. <laughs> That's good. But, but what, you, what you're being told here is that the most undesirable forms of food you can imagine can fetch, could, could fetch enormous prices because they were so rare. Uh, what would you prefer? A donkey's head? I understand a donkey's head has almost no meat on it. Uh, or, or, or would you prefer a handful of dove's dung, uh, or whatever it is? Uh, the first of them, we're told here, would cost you several years' wages. And the second one, if you're going for the cheaper option, that would be more than one year's wage. Uh, so that was the stranglehold that the king of Syria's armies had on Samaria. It was bad. They were terrible days. But it gets worse. Verse 26, now as the king of Israel was passing by on the city wall, uh, the troubled king was out, I think, probably taking stock of the situation. Maybe he was inspecting the state of the uh, city's defences. He had a lot on his mind. When suddenly, verse 26 tells us, a woman cried out to him saying, help my lord the king. 
Her cry must have stung. The king knew very well that he was unable to do anything to help his people. And he responded like that. See verse 27, If the Lord will not save you, how can I save you, lady? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? There's nothing there. There's nothing there. What do you expect me to do? He was abrupt, but you can kind of hear his despair. And you notice those words, he said, if the Lord will not save you, if the Lord does not help you, I wonder if the king, the thought had crossed the king's mind that perhaps this terrible situation in which he and his people found themselves was actually a punishment from God. That's not an entirely unreasonable thought if you look at the way in which this nation had been living. If God is against us, if that's what's going on, what can I possibly do? said the king. No wonder he was depressed. But the king pulled himself together a little bit and he asked the woman, verse 28, what is your trouble? What's the matter? Her reply should have one of those trigger warnings. I'm, I'm glad the children have left. Uh, we, we, we really need... You, you can't let the kids watch the news these days in the evening, can you, on the television? Um, those trigger warnings that you get on the news every single night... Uh, the following item contains distressing content. Well, this item certainly does. Verse 28 again, she answered, listen to this, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him and on the next day I said to her, give me your son that we may eat him, but she's hidden her son. Um, words fail, don't they? This is not a story that has made its way into many children's picture Bibles. It doesn't help much, but it is possible that the boys had already died. We don't know. But that's scene one. Just try and take it in. Terrible suffering. Scene two, I've called utter hopelessness. It's getting better, isn't it? Cheering up. Utter hopelessness. Verse 30. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall and the people looked and behold, he had sackcloth beneath his body. The king was shaken by the woman's story. Who wouldn't be? And he had nothing to offer her. I mean, just try and put yourself in his shoes for a moment. What would you do? What would you say to her if you were the king? What could you say to her? What would you do? This is utterly hopeless. And the king's torn clothes and the sackcloth, he was a picture of anguish, humiliation, despair. But listen to what then came out of his mouth. Verse 31. May God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. If God is against us, if God won't save us from this horror, there's nothing I can do, but I'll tell you what, I'll lash out at God's man, God's prophet, that, of course, is who Elisha was. We've seen that already. He was God's man there in Samaria at that time. 
We've had lots of stories about him. Again, if you read in and fill out all the parts that we haven't read, uh, lots of stories in the preceding pages. And the king, in his grief, in his despair, in his terror, the king turned against God's man. It was his way of lashing out at God, really. And I think it's not too much to say we kind of get that. Don't we? If you, I mean, if we're reading and thinking sympathetically, you've got to get it. And I know some of us have been there. In fact, indeed, some of you are, uh, that I've had uh, lovely conversations with and you've shared parts of your life story, there have been a, a few of you just over these two days have shared with me about moments in your life when you kind of didn't like God. And it, comes ar- it arises, doesn't it, from this experience of suffering. And when you're in the middle of it, if you could, would you lash out at God? And when you see someone doing that like this king, I do want to suggest we kind of get it. It's not an entirely foreign emotion. We don't just stand back and say, I couldn't imagine being there. Of course we could imagine being there. Now, in verse 32, the scene suddenly moves. From that situation uh, at the city wall to Elisha's house, which was somewhere in the city. We were there yesterday at some stage at Elisha's house, weren't we? And we're back there again. And we'll immediately notice how different was the atmosphere in Elisha's house to the troubled king and the despairing woman um, at the city wall. Verse 32, Elisha was sitting in his house and the elders were sitting with him. There's a strange calmness here. Some of the city's leaders, the old guys, had chosen in the dire circumstances that the city was in to join the man of God in his quiet composure. And their impression is that they're listening to Elisha. I wonder what he's saying to them. Well, whatever it was, was about to be interrupted. Verse 32, now the king had dispatched a man from his presence. Verse 32 in the middle of the verse there. The king had dispatched a man from his presence. But before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Elisha was under no illusions about the true character of his king. This murderer, he called him. And Elisha knew that the king's assassin was on his way to Elisha's house. So Elisha said to the old guys who were sitting around him, look, when the messenger comes, verse 32 again, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? It's almost a comical scene if it wasn't so desperately serious. These old men, uh, they, they, they shut the front door and they lean all their weight against the front door to keep, it, to keep the king's hitman from getting in aware, as Elisha has just told them, that the king himself is not far behind. And while Elisha was still speaking, the king's man arrived outside the closed door and said on behalf of the king, I presume in a loud voice so it could all be heard, this trouble, this disaster is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? This trouble, this disaster is from the Lord. Okay, so what are you going to do? What if that's true? This disaster is from God. What are you going to do about that, Your Majesty? If that's true, 
I mean, perhaps you could cry out to God for mercy. That's a possibility. Maybe you could say, I can't handle this. I need God's help. But no. Why should I wait? And that's actually the Old Testament word for hope for the Lord any longer, he said. If God has done this to me, I'm not going to have anything to do with him. And again, I want to suggest, dear friends, that in the circumstances, I sort of get that. I don't agree with it. I hope I don't do it. But I sort of get it, don't you? That's scene two, utter hopelessness. And I think that many of us have been in that kind of darkness. If God has done that to me, I'm not going to have anything to do with him. Scene three, I've called How Hope Starts. If you're picturing the scene, uh, there are now a few people outside the front door of Elisha's house. Uh, there's the assassin. Uh, the king himself has arrived and one or two others. On the inside, you've got the old guys still leaning all their weight against the door to keep it closed. And then... From inside the house comes the calm, firm voice of Elisha. Chapter 7, verse 1. But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow, about this time, a seer of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Now, we'll come to the details in just a moment, but first notice how these words from Elisha suddenly introduced a new possibility into those hopeless circumstances in Samaria. What was the possibility? It was this. Hear the word of the Lord. Really? How could that help? What difference could that make? The word of the Lord that then came from Elisha's lips came in the form of an astonishing promise. Within 24 hours, within 24 hours, wholesome food will be available for everyone in Samaria at reasonable prices. The promise, well, the promise was at complete odds with the circumstances in Samaria that day. No one could see, the, sorry, the, put it this way, the, nothing that the people could see could give them any hope. But what if they could hear the word of the Lord? And what if the word of the Lord was a promise? This promise. Can you see how Elisha's call to the king and his henchmen, to the elders, and anyone else within earshot, had the potential to change everything. Everything. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, friends, I want you to stick with me here. It's getting a little bit tiring. I think you, you, you may be losing concentration, but if you are, come back to it. Because this is the point 
at which the experience of these troubled, suffering people at Elisha's house in Samaria on that day connects with our experience today in our troubled, suffering world and our suffering lives. You see, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, it's a theme that runs right through the whole Bible and it's a very big idea. The Bible teaches that the God who really is there has given his word. The word of the Lord is God's commitment, God's promise. The word of the Lord that day in Samaria was was a kind of small-scale glimpse of what the word of the Lord is. But the word of the Lord is much bigger than the promise of plenty of food within 24 hours in Samaria on that particular day. What the whole Bible teaches us is that God has promised. God has promised a day on which he will put everything right. Everything. No more tears. No more pain. No more sadness. No more death. No more regrets. God has given his word, his promise. And the situation that, uh, on this particular day in Samaria is a small-scale picture of the situation in our troubled world. God has given his word so that in the face of terrible suffering, like that in Samaria, like that in our world today, like that in some of our lives right now, this is how hope starts. Hear the word of the Lord. And the Bible really is the story of the word of the Lord. Sometimes we, get, we, we, we make the mistake and we think the Bible is just a book of information about God or we treat it like that. You, know, you can learn stuff about God uh, in, the, in, in the Bible. And of course you can learn stuff about God in the Bible, but that, that doesn't get to the heart of what the Bible is. The Bible is God's promise. And the Bible tells us the story of God's promise. God's promise which has now come to its full expression in the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. All God's promises come together in this big promise. God has given his word. That's what the news about Jesus Christ is. It's God's promise to the world. See the suffering city of Samaria and see how it was like our suffering world, our individual personal suffering worlds. Is hope possible? It really doesn't look like it. I know that some of us are, are, are very conscious of, what's, of stuff that's going on in the world at the moment and there are many of us, I believe, who, who, who just can't see. How are we going to get out of this mess? Whichever particular mess you might be fo- focusing on. How are we, I can't see it. How can I have any hope? Is it possible? Yes. How? Hear the word of the Lord. And the question for all of us is simply, are you listening? Are you listening to the word of the Lord? Whatever suffering we may encounter, hope starts like this. 
Hear the word of the Lord. There is a promise. It's a big promise. It's a true promise. It's a reliable promise that makes hope possible. Whatever. I say that again with, with, with care. Whatever troubles we face. And the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is God's guarantee of his promise. Does that answer all our questions? No. But it does help us to see how hope, not despair, can begin, even in the worst of times. Listen to the word of the Lord. There is a, there is a little footnote to part one of the story this morning that I'm not going to go into. I'll leave it, again, a bit of homework. Give me a lot of homework this weekend, aren't we? Uh, in chapter 7, verse 2, there's a man at Elisha's front door who's in no mood to take what he heard from inside the house seriously. He was not prepared to hear the word of the Lord. We'll see how that worked out um, this afternoon when we come back. Let's pray together. Our God and Heavenly Father, as we, as we witness this uh, extraordinary situation in Samaria those many, many, many years ago. A terrible suffering and yet a promise. The word of the Lord. We look at our world. We look at our lives. And we are aware of pain and suffering and sadness and regret. We pray that you'd help us to be people who hear the word of the Lord and therefore discover hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stay with us, John. All right, we'll put the big QR code up, so if that's a bit easier for people to zap. Happy to do some live questions again, John? No. No? <laughs> that's what he said yesterday, <laughs> and he was great. <laughs> okay, um, yep, so just submit your questions through. That'll come through to me. Uh, okay, now, John, we've got uh, yes, Tim. quite a number of questions that are kind of along this theme. Uh, as we read the stories of God's just judgment upon those who have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, how should they drive us to compassion and generosity instead of looking down and judging non-Christians in our world? I guess that tension of holding the truth but then showing compassion. Yeah, um, that's a tension we struggle with and I think we'll continue to struggle with. But, and, and, but, but as long as we're struggling, I think we're on the right path. Uh, if you give in to one or the other, see, God is... Uh, gracious and merciful and compassionate. God is just and righteous and holy. Those, both those things are true. How do, they, how do they fit together? I can't quite manage it in my head. And I struggle to try to be godly, uh, which means being compassionate and caring uh, and at the same time angry about unrighteousness, angry about evil. And, 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 and hating evil in my own life and when I see it around me. So we have to do both those things, friends, and, and uh, it's, it's when we Christians, and, I, and sometimes I think we might do this, when we fall down one side or the other, 
when we say uh, we've got to be compassionate and, and somehow that, that, that defines what we've got to do and we forget about being righteous and truthful and, uh, and, 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 and caring about what is good and what is evil. Um, and in our world at the moment, compassion means, I think, uh, supporting people doing whatever they feel like doing. And if you actually uh, are critical of people doing what they feel like doing, you're not being compassionate. Well, and if you, if you go down that track, that, that's unhelpful. You've, our compassion has to stand alongside our concern for what is right and what is good. And that in, that in the end will be compassionate. Right? Uh, we, we, we mustn't imagine that our society, which is going along these tracks, isn't it, we, we, where personal freedom defined as me being free to do whatever I feel like provided I don't hurt anybody else, uh, it's not working out well. Of course it's not working out well because me doing whatever I feel like means me being selfish. Selfishness doesn't produce a particularly healthy society, the selfishness of individuals, that's, but that's, that's the mood of our time. So being compassionate in that sort of superficial sense is not going to help. We've got to also be like God as much as we, <laughs> a, a very pale and imperfect reflection of what God is like We've got to be concerned for righteousness and goodness as well. Now, don't come down the other side where you, where you're so, where you become sort of self-righteous and think that we are, you know, look down on other people and 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 don't care about them, get, give up on compassion. That, that that's equally bad. Um, and that, that that I think is the only answer. We've we've got to try and combine these two things together. And at any point, you your personality will probably incline you to one or the other. And if you're inclined to be a compassionate person, then you've got to say, I've got to be concerned about the truth and what is right and what is good. If you're inclined to be more concerned for, the, for, for those other things, you've got to say, am, am I compassionate? Do I care? And uh, so both of those things have to, ha have to, be, have to come together. And I do, really do believe they can come together. Hmm. Um, a couple of people have also had a question along this theme as well. Um, so you've, you've made the comment, John, that as we've looked at the story of Israel back in uh, the ancient history, uh, they are displaying for us the state of this world. And so a number of people have asked, um, would you give reflection on uh, how you see the troubled world of Second Kings uh, in relation to the trajectory our world is on. Are, are, we, are we declining even further away from where they were? Do you feel like it's going to get worse in the next hundred years? Is there any chance of a turnaround? I guess the, the aspect of turnaround, I'm not sure if that's an end times kind of question or if it's just, is there even temporal, temporal hope for a bit of a turnaround? Temporal hope, yeah, 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 fair enough. Yeah, good, uh, good question. Thank you for these excellent questions. I wish you were listening to the talk and not make a, uh, hard questions for me. This is... <laughs> um, The parallels between Israel and our world are not, it, it, it's a pale shadow, Israel's experience, um, at, at every level. It's not, we're not in the same situation as Israel. Uh, at one level, they had a revelation from God. 
Uh, read your Old Testament, you know, the, you, know, you know the story with the Exodus and Mount Sinai, the giving of the law, the coming of the prophet. They had a revelation from God. We have a re revelation from God that is fuller and bigger and shines brighter uh, in the coming of Jesus into the world. Um, so we are living in a brighter light than they, they were living in. That means that our turning away from that is all the more serious. Our history is their history was complicated, our history is complicated in ways that are different. So we were talking yesterday about how we happen to be living in a time of history when, we, when there is a whole civilization, really, they call it Western civilization, that has been influenced by Christian thinking. And the moment we find ourselves right now is by no means unique in history, but we're experiencing a whole civilization apparently rejecting emphatically the God whose ways have influenced it over the, uh, uh, over the centuries. Now, I'm suggesting to you that as we look at Israel, we can see what, that, what rejecting God is like. And rejecting God is ugly, actually, at the end of the day. Rejecting God is something you don't want to go there. And it doesn't, it do, it, it doesn't work out well at any level. Now, it's not going to work out well in terms of the final judgment. We know that. That's, that's perfectly clear. But it doesn't work out well in the meantime. Um, as we, and you can think of ex particular examples. I, I'll refrain from going into, particu into particulars at the moment. But as you, th as you think of various good ways of living that accord with the Scripture's teaching or correspond roughly at least with the scriptures teaching, as those good ways of living are abandoned in our society, it's not working out well. And if you can't see that, come and talk to me and we'll, we'll chat it over. But it's not working out well. We're not living in a world where, uh, we'll talk about this a little bit at five o'clock this afternoon, but if you're looking at the levels of despair, you're looking at the levels of mental health crises among young people, you're looking at, it, on almost any measure, it is not working out well, this, um, this embracing of a, of a godless view of the world and godless view of life. It didn't work out well in Israel. It's not working out well now. It won't work out well. Now, could it turn around? Yeah. Yeah. Even, even at a, in a temporal sense. It, 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 Australia could become a better country uh, as... There are more and more Christians in the country, more and more churches dotted around the country, and people see, hey, that's something worth taking notice of. Yeah, yeah, it could turn around. Not, not looking good at the moment, but it could. Mm. Um, does God's promise to right every wrong and, and correct every injustice include those who don't know the Lord. Um, I'm wondering if we should take that as, you know, people who don't know the Lord, but uh, how, how their injustices get righted. Or you could take it in. Yeah, no, no, Fred, uh, got a really helpful answer to that question, which is my answer to lots of questions. I haven't got a clue. <laughs> Uh, that is to say, I don't know how God's going to pull this off, and none of us do. We, we, we don't know how God's going to... Uh, what we've got is the, a promise. <laughs> In this sense, it's a little bit like Samaria. Really? Cheap food tomorrow? Mm. How's that going to happen? Mm. Nobody had any idea how that could possibly happen. 
Well, that's, that's, that's almost trivial compared with. How is God going to bring about a situation like this? The situation is going to be everything is put right and I have no regrets about how God has done it. I'm absolutely thrilled to pieces. I'm absolutely rejoicing at the situation. And yet, I've got loved ones who are on the wrong side of this. I've got loved ones who are going to face God's judgment. Am I going to love them less? No. But somehow or other, this is what I, I don't I just, I'm like the people who say, I, I've got no idea how God's going to pull this off. I'm, no, I'm going to have no regrets. There's going to be a day of no regrets and it's going to come. Now, I don't have to know how God is going to do it to say, okay, he's done quite a few things. I don't know how he's, going to, how he's done in the past. He's got a record for doing things that we, don't un- we, ca- we can't anticipate how he's going to do it, do it. But that's the big one. He's going to bring about this day when none of us, we won't be any less loving than we are now, and there'll be a lot of people here, uh, self-included, who have loved ones and, and, and perhaps loved ones who have died and our hearts are breaking for them. We wonder what the day is going to come. Don't ask me how. I don't know. I haven't got a clue. But the day is going to come when there will be no more sadness and not because you've become hard-hearted. How could that be? I don't know. <laughs> That's the point. We're trusting God to do what he's promised and one day you'll say, wow, He's done it. Now, don't, you know, we, one of the problems is with, with this sort of thing, these, you know, these really big things that God is doing, one of the problems is that we Christians try to work out the answers. You start to try and work out this answer, uh, speaking in theological terms, you can end up a universalist. You say, oh, well, God's going to save everyone. That's what, No, that's not the answer. That's a simple answer, uh, intellectually simple answer. Uh, that, 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 that's clearly not the answer that the scriptures give us. You don't, don't become a universalist. You say, I don't know how it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. I can't remember what the question was, mate. But <laughs> well, I was thinking, oh, I've got some follow-up questions, but you've said I don't know several times, so I've been not follow-up. <laughs> yeah. can, can we just take that as read from yeah. now on? <laughs> um, so in your earlier talk this morning, uh, you mentioned... You mentioned, you you did a stop-down moment where you really implored us to value meeting together around God's word um, and you you referenced sitting at the feet of Jesus. Um, One person here has said that that's recalled uh, the story of um, Mary's choice to sit at Jesus' feet. Mm, um, Lovely. In contrast to Martha and her busyness. Now, how, how do we do that when... Uh, we are, we've got phones on us, this is what the questioner has, we've got phones on us, we're, it is just super busy, uh, life is chaotic, our anxieties pull us in lots of different directions. Um, it is really, really hard. Do you have any advice of how to, to cut through to actually really hold yeah, that? Become a, yeah, we've got, we've got to become more disciplined. Um, we, we've got to, uh, one, what is one of the fruit of the Spirit? Self-control. Um, we've got to take this seriously and take, a, take responsibility for it. Li- life is busy. Okay, that doesn't mean you can't do anything about it. There are all sorts of pressures on you. That doesn't mean you can't carefully work out what are my priorities. Now, we do it all the time. We do it all the time. So, um, 
you know, in kind of obvious things. Your kids have a need and there are some other demands on you. You prioritise your kids' need again and again, don't we? Um, well, I, I, what we're thinking about this morning is there is a priority that doesn't come to us naturally like that one. And it's the priority of being with God's people under God's word. That really is big time important. It's important for us, but it's important, full stop. Uh, it's important because we benefit from that, but it's important to do anyway. Other people benefit, and it's important for, uh, for, for the... Re I won't, won't go over that earlier talk again. But, uh, friends, yeah, of course it's complicated. But we are responsible people. God has given us a responsibility, and the responsibility is to be thoughtful about our lives. And it's just not... Sorry, I, this sounds a little harsh, and I don't mean it to be harsh, but w it's just not good enough for us to say, oh, I've got family demands, and I really can't get here every Sunday. I want to say that. I, I don't think that's good enough. Now, please don't turn this into a legalistic thing. Uh, I do believe there are occasions when it's right to not come to church because there is something that you really ought to do. I'm not at my church this morning. Why is that? <laughs> um, I, I don't want to turn it into a legalistic thing. I don't want people to be going on guilt trips. But I really uh, want to encourage you to, to think this is a priority. And it really mustn't be, this is what I do if nothing else has come up. Right? If something else has come up, then of course we can skip this Sunday. We'll be there next week. Uh, no, that's not good enough. This is so important um, that, uh, that you know, our world needs churches healthy, thriving churches. And if our world needs churches, it needs you to be there, be here. This final question, I'm sure you can answer with one syllable. Um, Dunno. <laughs> no, you, you, spell, <laughs> you spell it D-U-N-N-O. <laughs> Dunno. Yeah, sorry, you said two syllables. I thought you said two words. Yeah, okay. Um, oh, here we go. Um, John, we have loved your teaching would you come and teach us again? <laughs> <laughs> Only if invited. Yeah. Well, okay, we'll invite you and we'll work out the date at some other stage. <laughs> thank you, mate. Now, before you go, um, we do want to say thank you. It's not over, as we've been talking about. It's happening again tonight with the fifth instalment uh, that John's going to take us through. But uh, just given we'll have some other people with us, we thought we'd take the moment now to just say thank you for all your hard work. Pleasure, mate. Um, John, and uh, uh, I've contacted John several times throughout the week, uh, emails and phone. Um, John graciously has just given his time to us uh, wonderfully to, to bless us. And uh, after all those emails and phone calls where I'm going, oh, could we do it this way? Could we do that? Could we put this in? You, you might be thinking, what have I got myself into? <laughs> but we're, we're very appreciative. Um, we hope you do come again. Um, we have uh, a voucher that will send you and Moya off to a lovely dinner at a restaurant, at a restaurant That's somewhere. That's very kind. So thank John. That's very kind. Thank you, Tim. Friends, it's, it's been a great joy to be with you and a real privilege to be invited to be part of this fellowship for the weekend. Thank you very much. Absolutely.